Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar Magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. I write in my books. I know this is a controversial practice, and some of you may tune out after hearing this, write me off, never listen to Smarty Pants again, and I am willing to accept this because writing in books has a long and storied tradition. And once upon a time, books were entirely handwritten. Besides, manuscript scholars have long marveled over the marginalia left in books, particularly handwritten books, and what the different layers of a text tell us about the people who made it. Mary Wellesley is one such manuscript scholar. A tutor at the British Library, Wellesley is the author of The Gilded Page, an ode to the ordinary people who wrote books by hand, illustrated them, bound them, preserved them, and did all of the necessary labor to ensure that they survived the centuries intact, or perhaps only slightly nibbled by mice. Mary Wellesley joins us from Oxford. Thanks so much for talking to me, Mary. Thank you for having me. Why write about manuscripts? And in a world of thousands of manuscripts, how did you pick the ones that you talked about? Why write about manuscripts? Well, I suppose something of what I wanted to capture in the book was this sensation that I have when I'm sitting in the kind of velvety silence of a special collections reading room and turning the pages of a medieval manuscript. And in that moment, what I'm having is these kind of encounters with the past, a tangible, smellable, visual encounter with the past, and more importantly, an encounter with the people who made the object in front of me. And what's so wonderful about manuscripts is because they're all created by hand and they're created by so many different people. I mean, the creation of a manuscript was a fundamentally collaborative exercise. What you have is this amazing connection to these people from the past. And those people most often are anonymous. And so there's something very moving about the fact that you're able to momentarily connect with these lives now long receded. So why write in manuscripts. You talk in the introduction about marginalia, all the bits and bobs to be found in the margins. So what kinds of marginalia do we see across the Middle Ages and why are they interesting? Yeah, so, well, marginalia really ranges in terms of its scope and content and quality. Um, You know, at, at, at its most formal end, you have what's called the Glossa Ordinaria, which is this kind of standard uh, commentary that often appears alongside biblical texts or even legal texts. And if you have seen an image of a medieval manuscript where there's a kind of central area of text, which is perhaps bigger than the rest, and then there are these kind of thick margins around the edges where there's smaller writing, that's an example of the Glossa Ordinaria. And what you see there, which I really love, is is the kind of page becoming in itself this arena for debate and all these different figures debating with the main text itself. Um, and then you have, for example, there's this wonderful manuscript in the Edgerton Collection in the British Library, which is a manuscript of the Canterbury Tales. And uh, I don't know if you remember from the Canterbury Tales, but the wonderful figure of the wife of Bath and her story. And uh, she's this kind of fantastic, subversive figure. But what's interesting is that in this particular manuscript, there's a what's called a glossator, so a person who comes along and writes these notes in the margins. 
And this Glossator is clearly kind of outraged by the wife of Bath and the arguments that she's putting forward about uh, the value of marriage versus virginity. And he, he doesn't like, you know, the very fact of this woman speaking. And so here in the margins, we see this Glossator almost trying to kind of wrestle the text back from the wife and, uh, and get control of the narrative, which is, which is very funny because that really, that, that tells us all sorts of wonderful things about early reader response, but it's also quite an interesting comment on the Canterbury Tales itself, which is a poem that dramatizes the wonder of people fighting with each other and having this this kind of discussion um, with one another. And then, uh, you know, there are other examples of of marginalia, like um, a very important one is um, what's called the interlinear gloss in uh, a manuscript called the Lindisfarne Gospels, which is um, a very beautiful 8th century manuscript made in the north of England, an absolute masterpiece of its form. And in around 970, a figure called Aldred came along and wrote in the spaces between the lines uh, a translation of the biblical text. And it's the earliest translation of the Bible into English that we know, that we have. And it's from 970. So there's, people often think that the Bible wasn't translated into English until, you know, perhaps the Reformation, but that's actually not true. So this is, you know, so the types of marginalia that you can find in manuscripts are incredibly varied, but they're so rich with meaning uh, across lots of different cultural contexts. It's so helpful, I think, to have the notes and the commentary directly in the books. But it's also kind of remarkable that people would even dare to write in these objects, because I was floored to learn that a scribe could only produce about 20 books in a lifetime. Like, depending on how fancy the book was, it could take years to finish, separate from the composing of it. Just the literal writing of the book could take years. Can you give us a sense of all the labor that went into these objects? You know, how many people, how many hours over these years? Yeah, so, well, I mean, obviously, it does hugely depend on the status and value of the manuscript. So um, in the book, I talk about this amazing, in fact, unfinished manuscript called the Winchester Bible, which took some 15 years to just illuminate, um, to illustrate and decorate, uh, whereas the copying of the text itself probably took maybe two or three years. Um, but what I often like to say when I'm trying to give a sense of uh, of the labor that went into the production of a manuscript, I like to start at the most basic level with the parchment. And the parchment, which was the most common writing surface on which manuscripts were uh, written in the Middle Ages. And parchment is the um, prepared skin of a domestic animal, like a sheep or a calf. And it's an incredibly elaborate process to make it. Um, so I actually went to the last parchment maker in England and had a go at making this parchment myself. And, and it was a really wonderful experience because it made me realize just the number of man hours that went into the production simply of the material on which these uh, texts were written. And it's it's very elaborate, the process. You know, you, you start off by having to soak the, the hides in a, in quicklime and then you get them out and you throw them over a thing called a stump and then you scrape off the hair and then you repeat this process several times and you have to stretch the skin over a kind of um, a thing that looks a bit like a sort of rustic trampoline and then it has to be dried and scraped again. And at the end of it, you have this this wonderful surface. It's it's milky smooth. It's durable. It's flexible. It's actually much much better than paper in many ways. But it takes a really long time 
to make just one hide, one treated hide, which depending on the size of a manuscript might give you perhaps eight pages, depending. So if you think about something like, uh, there's an amazing manuscript called the Codex Amiatinus, made in the 8th century, um, now in Italy, but originally made in the north of England. Something like 500 calfskins made up the pages. And so you think about the investment of time and resources. I mean, simply to raise that number of animals, to farm that number of animals, is, is quite a labor-intensive process. I always say about manuscripts, you know, manuscripts today command a very high price in the sale room because of their cultural value, right? But if you were to think about, uh, let's say you, you're kind of, you're an insurer, right? And you're going to uh, think about what it would cost to simply recreate this object if it was destroyed. Uh, the same number of man hours to just faithfully reproduce it. You suddenly start to have a completely new understanding of their value because it's an object that took years to create. And there's basically very little that we produce today that takes so long to produce. Yeah, I was totally floored when I learned exactly how much time went into it. And I was also, I mean, what's great about this book is it totally undermined a lot of my assumptions, um, one of which was that most of the medieval books we know about, we'd known about for quite a long time, but I was wrong. I was also wrong in pretty much every assumption I had about one of the books in particular that was discovered fairly recently, the book of Marjorie Kemp. Um, I assumed that because it survived, it must have been written by some posh woman somewhere and wouldn't be very interesting or tell us much more than we already knew. But that was also wrong. Um, so could you talk about this incredible book and how it was discovered and why on earth it's so important? Yeah, well, this is perhaps almost my favorite story from the whole book. Um, so in 1934, um, a family called the Butler Bowden family, who were a Catholic family um, who had a house in Derbyshire, and they were playing a game of ping pong. And uh, one of the ping pong players trod on a ping pong ball. And so they went to a nearby cupboard uh, to try and find a new ball. And opening the cupboard, what fell out of the cupboard was what was described as a kind of undisciplined pile of book clutter. And uh, Colonel Butler Bowden uh, said that he hated this mess and that he was going to throw the whole lot on the fire the next day. Thankfully, somebody said to him, perhaps we shouldn't throw this on the fire. We should have a look and see what's here. Um, and in particular, there was one book that had uh, what was described as rather a mouse-eaten cover. And on further investigation, it turned out that this book with the mouse-eaten cover was none other than the lost book of Marjorie Kemp. The book of Marjorie Kemp, it's an extraordinary book, but its extraordinariness lies in its ordinariness because Marjorie Kemp was from a kind of prosperous urban mercantile family. She was essentially, a, you know, what we might today term a middle-class woman. She came from East Anglia in the east of England. And she was the mother of 14 children. She worked variously as a brewer and a horse mill operator. And the key thing about Marjorie is that uh, it's so often the voices of a, of a regal or ecclesiastical elite come down to us from the Middle Ages. But what's wonderful about Marjorie is she was, she was basically an ordinary woman. And the reason that those voices so rarely survive is that those were the people that were much less likely to be literate. And Marjorie is no different because she was illiterate. And in order to get the book written down, 
she had to dictate it to what's called an amanuensis. So that was a scribe who heard her words and wrote them down. In fact, she made four different attempts to do this with three different people, um, which I find very moving. You know, she really worked hard to, to get her voice heard and to have her experiences recorded. Um, she had this incredible life. The book opens with the story of her um, after the birth of her first child, um, which seems to have gone very badly and we don't know if the child survived. Um, in fact, we don't know if any of the 14 children that are mentioned in the book actually survived. And after this this birth, um, she has what probably today we might term postpartum psychosis. Um, she, she describes how she lost her mind and she's kept chained and she doesn't know who anyone is. And in this terrible state, she has this vision of Christ and she's then restored to her wits. And this is the first in a long series of uh, these moments in her life when she has these visions of Christ and uh, the Virgin Mary. And it's an incredible life. She she travels around. She goes to Jerusalem, to Santiago de Compostela. She goes to Aachen. Um, she travels all around England. Um, she lives as what's called a vowess. So uh, she, um, she takes religious vows but doesn't live as part of a religious institution so she's a highly unusual and kind of subversive figure um, but what's so important about her is that her text is this kind of open unvarnished honest account of a woman's attempt to live a good spiritual life and she she frequently uh, is rebutted there's a lovely bit at the beginning of the text where she describes herself as being like a reed spur you know, a, a, a section of reed that is that is blown by the wind and is constantly moving in the wind. So like a reed spur in time of temptation. And it's, I think it's a very moving image. And it describes how how there is nothing fixed and stable about Marjorie. She's, she's constantly striving all the while. I mean, it's very interesting that it was previously known to us. It was a lost book, as you say. We knew it existed. But the previous forms that were known to us were severely edited. Was that common for books to be edited for extracts or pamphlets or later publications? Yeah. So I think the key thing about Marjorie is that um, until the discovery of the text in 1934, the only version that was known was these these heavily abbreviated extracts. Um, and in that text, uh, which was printed by Winkin de Word, who was the successor to William Caxton, who was England's first printer, in that text, the voice of Marjorie has been removed. And all that we're left with are the moments in the text where Christ speaks to Marjorie. And therefore, Marjorie becomes this kind of silent weeping submissive woman which is so unlike the marjorie that we find in the in the book of marjorie kemp itself in the manuscript version of the text um which underlines how important the manuscript is and to the question about um how often this happened well it's of course very hard to say because we don't know how many um, abbreviated extracts um, were originally part of much larger texts that just don't survive because manuscript survival is a huge issue. You know, such a tiny proportion of what was originally created in the Middle Ages survives to this day. Um, I think a, th a key point to make is that 
the Middle Ages cared much less about authorship in the way that we would understand it today. I mean, to us today, we think of a text as being something kind of stable and discreet. And we think of authors as being important named figures whose work we want to protect and to respect. And and those those notions just don't really apply in the Middle Ages. Um, the value of a text lay in the text itself, not in the person who authored it. Therefore, the text could be played around with um, in a way that perhaps we would feel a little uncomfortable with playing around with the words of an author. Because it butts up against our idea of authorship, but it's also kind of ironic in a way because the words of many authors only survive because of these copies, because of these different versions. You know, you find an original text, you make a copy, that scribe maybe makes some changes, you know. Uh, It only survives because of this process, but it does get changed in the process. Yeah, and I think that's, to me, the great magic of manuscripts, that every single one is different. And so often you read the words of an author mediated through the energies of the scribe. And that tells you something interesting about the scribe's interpretation. I mean, I'm just endlessly fascinated by scribes and the decisions that they make. Um, but yeah, it's very that's a, that's a concept that's quite hard for us to understand because you know, even today we think of an editor, the editor of a text, you know, say in a kind of critical edition of a text for for undergraduates to read. We think of that editor as being this kind of, you know, trustworthy person who's trying to simply act as a kind of midwife to to deliver the text to the reader. And and actually in the in the Middle Ages, the the scribe is, you know, is probably meddling with what's in front of them. You mentioned, too, that manuscript scholarship itself has changed over the years. Um, What do you mean exactly? What are we doing differently now than in 1934, say, when Marjorie Kemp was first discovered? So I think a lovely story to to kind of illustrate this is the story of John Manley and Edith Rickard, who were the first um, editors of the Canterbury Tales. They were were both at the University of Chicago. And... um, they were the first ones to produce an edition of the Canterbury Tales that looked at every single surviving manuscript, of which there are, I think, around 92 in varying different levels of completeness. Some of them are only tiny fragments, some of them are, are whole manuscripts. And Manley and Rickett set about looking at every single manuscript. And the idea, I think, that they had was, well, we're going to find this manuscript that's really authoritative, and it's going to take us back you know, really close to Chaucer. It might not be Chaucer's own own manuscript, but we're gonna get we're gonna get much closer to Chaucer. And instead what they found was just this kind of intellectual spaghetti of multiple different manuscript versions. Uh, the Canterbury Tales, as you may remember if you've read it or if you haven't, uh, is a story about some pilgrims who set off on the road to Canterbury and in the story they decide that they're each gonna tell a tale on the way to Canterbury and on the way back. Now, the poem is unfinished. We only ever hear one tale, and we don't hear from all of the different pilgrims who appear in what's called the general prologue at the beginning. It's this great unfinished masterpiece uh, which survives in so many different forms. And Manley and Rickert thought that this edition would take them a few years, and it ended up taking 16 years because of the sheer amount of information that they had to process. And they produced an edition which was very important, but perhaps it didn't quite achieve 
what they set out to achieve. And the great thing about Manley and Rickett, just as an aside, is that they uh, they were used to dealing with large bodies of information because they worked for the American government in the First World War on cryptography. And dealing with large masses of data was something that they were they were used to doing. But I think the point about Manley and Rickett was they were trying to get to this authoritative text. They were trying to get us back to get us back to Chaucer, what Chaucer had said. And I think since that time, um, in the twenties and or late twenties and um, and into the thirties, when they were working on the edition, I think there has been a real shift that now we recognise, or some scholars at least recognise, that what scribes are doing is often just as interesting as what authors were doing. And what scribes were doing tells us something quite important about what a text might have meant in a particular time. It's, you know, that it's an important example of what we now call kind of reader response theory or a version of it. In a way, then, I guess, like studying manuscripts is like a middle finger to authority because there really is no authority. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Yeah, that's yeah. Perhaps that's why I like them so much. We have links in the show notes to Mary Wellesley's new book, The Gilded Page, The Secret Lives of Medieval Manuscripts, as well as links to where you can look at these manuscripts yourself online via the British Library and other institutions. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. <laughs>